Thank you, church. Thank you, pastor. Thanks for just a wonderful hospitality and just a great spirit that is already here. Yeah, my wife and I have been married. We celebrated 30 years in the middle of COVID. You know, one of those great things. Yes, what are we going to do for our 30th anniversary? Well, we get locked in our house with our two daughters and have dinner. But that's what we did. So 30 years, a wonderful marriage. Our, we have three fantastic daughters, 19, 21, and 25 years old, and a wonderful son-in-law. So yes, I am one of the founding members of the Fathers of Female Support Group. I just want you to know that. Even our dogs over the years have been female. So, you know, I, I just open the door some days and estrogen just oozes out. You know, what is going on? You know, what's, why the tears? I don't get it. You know, I was, I mean, I'm clueless. I'm the oldest of five. My brother and I just ran around and, you know, threw rocks at each other. You know, and now it's a whole life. But I would never trade my girls for the world. And I think so often of how God has blessed us and brought us. When we left America, they were one, three, and seven. The only... The only life they knew was really Moldova. They grew up in this place. And Moldova is, I'll back up. I am not a pastor's kid. I'm not a missionary kid, a PK or an MK. I'm a CK, which is a carpenter's kid. So I grew up pounding nails, just working with my dad. When I was seventh grade, I had to start working every summer with him and hauling the two-by-fours and hauling concrete blocks. That was my life. I had no intention, ever desire to go into ministry, but God somehow interrupted my life. I ended up at a Bible school. God spoke to me and met Nancy. We got married and we launched into pastoral ministry. Happy, learning how to work with youth and then later leading a church and loving pastoring. Pastoring in Montana, big sky country, you know, where your kindergarten classes go on ski trips. I mean, this is, this is Montana. And then we came home from a mission service one day at our church, had a missionary speak, I said to Nancy, I wonder if God is speaking to us about missions. And, you know, just kind of that, that stirring in my heart. And her eyes went like, what? No. You know, and her, now she always had a passion for missions. But she said, I want to be one of these pastors that goes to one place and never moves. You know, let's, let's see the church grow forever. And so we, we wrestled with it. It took two or three months praying back and forth. Her story is different. God spoke to her even ahead of me. But I, mine came to a point probably two, three months down the road where I was at the church early one morning pacing back and forth, just saying, God, is this really you? And, you know, are you wanting me to go? And I had my Bible open. And I often read my Bible when I'm praying. And I read the passage of Scripture where people give Jesus excuses. You know, I just got some new oxen. I can't follow you yet. Another guy said, my father just died. Let me go back and bury him. And what was Jesus' response? Let the dead bury the dead. And I felt like right at that instant, God spoke to me and said, Andy, quit making excuses. I mean, we're all good with excuses. We make the joke, it used to be the dog ate my homework, now we can just say the computer crashed. I mean, we find ways to make excuses. So I called my parents a couple hours later, and my parents are believers, but I talked to my dad and said, Dad, I'm thinking that maybe God is calling us into missions, particularly to Eastern Europe. And the first words out of my dad's mouth were, why don't you wait until I'm dead first? Now, I'm not exaggerating that. I was like, oh, where, well, I, just read that. Where I, read, I just read that verse. And so we began to pray about where. Um, in fact, I know, 345, September 19th, right in the middle of the night, God spoke to me and said, Moldova, go to Moldova. I had a dream. I'm, I was, we were at the stage of life of perpetual exhaustion, okay? So we had three little kids. You're always tired. And it was 3 o'clock in the morning. I woke up with my middle daughter, Natalie, right next to my face. You know, and I spoke, ah, oh, what is this, you know, two-year-old. And so I pulled her into bed and realized I had just put the girl that does jumping jacks while she sleeps in between us. So I did what any smart dad would do at that time and moved to the living room. So I just grabbed my pillow and said, that's it, I'm leaving. I'm laying there on the couch, and I had a dream. I heard myself stand before a group of people like this and said, we are so excited to be your missionaries to Moldova. 
And I went, Moldova, 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 Moldova. And Guy and I had this little conversation, one word, Moldova. I'm asking and him stating until I said, okay, we'll go to Moldova. And I walked in and woke Nancy up at 3.45. I said, the only place we need to go is Moldova. And she said, oh, I could have told you that six weeks ago. Rolled back over and went back to sleep. So we landed in Moldova. Moldova is this tiny little country next to Romania. Okay, that gives you a little perspective. I've had people say, isn't Moldova that country in Prince's Diaries? No, that was Genovia, a pretend nation. Okay, Moldova is real. Former Soviet Union fell apart. Time magazine once had us ranked as the unhappiest country in the world. I, you know, that is, I wish I could make bumper stickers like that. Too much happiness, too much joy. Just come to Moldova. We will suck you dry. I mean, that is really what it's like. But we grew up there. I mean, we, our kids grew up there. We learned to love it. It's home. I mean, yeah, it's not easy. I mean, there's potholes in the road big enough to do water baptisms in. I mean, there's squatty potties. I mean, it's just life. But God then called us to go to Russia. And it was a wrestling match. I don't want to leave Moldova. You know, it is squatty potties, but I know how to use them now. You know, there is potholes, and I know how to avoid them. And, and God called us to Russia, and we fell in love with Russia. Living in St. Petersburg, but I've been to the reindeer people above the Arctic Circle and the Muslims down in the Caucasus. I've been to the east and the west and the middle of Siberia. And I like Siberia. You know, Siberia is a good place, a beautiful place. And then I got a call to come back and serve in another role. And we're always saying yes to Jesus, even today. In fact, I just want to challenge you, every day you have to get up, pick up your cross, and make the decision, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you. He asks you every day to lay your life before him and to follow him. And so God's called us, and we all are on that path, some way, some form. I'm just an ordinary person that God has somehow used in different paths along the way. But we all are simply conduits of God's grace. We are therefore Christ's ambassador, as if God were speaking through us. And that's all God asks. Just let yourself be used of God. The world turned upside down. That's a little phrase right now in a popular musical, Hamilton. The world turned upside down. It's a great musical and great song, but it comes not from the musical, but from Scripture. It actually is a perfect description of what our last 10, 12 months have been like, right? The world is turned upside down. We're, we're wearing masks. We've got COVID. We've got uh, protests in the street. We've had the election. Oh, my word. I mean, the best. I'm just going to give you a little secret right here from all missionaries. The best part about being a missionary is being out of the country during any election year, okay? Anytime we like to be out of here. It is not the easiest time. And everything seemed like it came together in this last year. The world has been turned upside down. But in Acts chapter 17, and I'm reading out of a, a little different translation, the Passion Translation, just because it has a different slant, a different wording. And I love this phrase in Acts 17. Acts 17, Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica. I'm going to just read it. As they customarily did, they went to the synagogue to speak to the Jews from the Torah scrolls. For three weeks, Paul challenged them by explaining the truth and proving to them the reality of of the gospel, that the Messiah had to suffer and die, then rise again among the dead. He made it clear to them, saying, I come to announce to you that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. He simply preached the gospel. Some of the Jews were convinced, and they joined Paul and Silas. A number of prominent women and a large number of Greeks worshiped God. They became believers, followers of Jesus. But many of the Jews were motivated by bitter jealousy and formed a large mob out of troublemakers and unsavory characters, street gangs. They incited a riot. 
And they set out to attack Jason's home, that one of those first believers. And the mob was after Paul and Silas, but they weren't there. So they grabbed Jason and some of the other brothers in the house church. They dragged them before the city council. Along the way, they screamed, those troublemakers who have turned the world upside down have come here to our city. I want to challenge you right now, no matter what, even if we look at pandemics and politics and protests, nothing will turn the world upside down like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can do that. And actually, I want to even correct that. The gospel does not turn the world upside down, but it turns the world right side up. It fixes that which was broken, lives that were lost. The gospel is there to transform lives. Some of you, I don't know your stories, some, I don't know your testimonies, some of you could raise your hand and say, I will give you 30 minutes. My life was turned upside down. I was an alcoholic. I was addicted to drugs. My marriage was falling apart. I was lost, and, and God saved me. We all have those stories. We all know that moment of darkness. When I was 14 years old, and I said, God, I am scared to death, and I needed you. And I grabbed onto him, and my life was went turned to Jesus. Jesus can turn your life right side up. The greatest disruptor to anything in the world will always be Jesus Christ. Amen? It's why we're doing missions. It's why we're sharing about missions. Because this world needs to be turned around, needs to be set right, have their feet set in a way that they can be oriented toward Jesus Christ, the living God, the one truth, the way, the truth, and the life. I was with a friend in Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, and they were working at planting the church. Ivory Coast's has been destroyed for decades due to civil war. It ended a number of years ago, but just the shattered remains of it have existed. And it was a, a country that was almost split. So it, originally the Muslims came in, drove down from the north, pushed the Christians out, burned churches, per, persecution, drove all the, the few churches down to the south. And it's been a broken place, politics. And, but the church often gets caught in the middle of this. And it was broken. Well, a number of years well, not that many years ago, the missionary that was there really started putting a passion into the, the national church that we have to establish churches. There's, there's places that need Jesus Christ. I mean, we've got to go. And they went from 400 churches up to 2,500. And I think their goal is up to 4,500 plant churches in just a few years. And they're, they're planting churches back again among the, the Muslim villages in the north. They just want to do everything they can because there's one answer. What is it? Jesus Christ. And the church as his representative in that community. Well, they were in one village that was all Muslim. And so they're going in, they're going to start putting in a well. And that's usually what we do oftentimes in many places you know, around the world. We do the same thing in Moldova. We'll do it in Russia. Around the world, you oftentimes have to do almost like a pre-evangelism just to really show the love of Christ. It, it really is the power of love. Because the world doesn't know that. I mean, they really haven't seen it. They have... They're used to acts of, a, of gifting, all with strings attached. Yes, we will do this as a government, so you vote for us. Or we, they always have strings attached, but as believers, we just do it because we have the love of Christ. So they're in this village, going to put a well in, and the Muslim leader from that village comes up to them, comes up to them and says, we need you as a church to do your job. He's like, what? What are you talking about? What, do our job? What, what do you mean? He says, our, we're, our nation has been split by civil war. We need the church to come do its job because only the church can help people forgive. And our nation needs forgiveness. I want that to sink in. 
There is non-believers asking the church to come preach the gospel because they know the power of forgiveness. Why do we need missionaries? Because there's a world out there that is lost that is begging for you and I to come to share with them something that can change their life. West Africa, a nation that was uh, another nation, the missionary there was working on putting up a, a tabernacle. And they had gone out to this remote village. And a tabernacle is really just a frame structure. Okay, So it's some posts, a little roof over top of it, and that's it. It just is enough to give a local church in a local community a roof overhead, something to start. It gives them legitimacy. And it's so important to have that. And often around the world, we try to just get some kind of structure because it gives them a foothold, a legality, and a place to meet. Now the church will finish it, they'll finish the walls, and they'll do windows, and they'll, it'll be beautiful by the time they're done. I've been in some tabernacles that are huge, but it's a wonderful ministry that Africa, somebody's of God, has been doing for years. Well, the missionary was there working in this one village, and he had taken a team from another vill- church in a nearby village with him, because they're all doing this together. It's not just outside missionaries doing it, it's a together job. They went to the place, but he did not have a bricklayer who was on the team. So they hired somebody to come. He was Muslim, couldn't find a Christian one. So they hauled this guy along, and he's the, they paid him to come. And so the first night they're out there, and they're checking out the land. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set it here. We'll be ready to go first thing in the morning. Materials are there. But we're going to do a service out in the open tonight. That bricklayer tried to scoot out of there. He was going, what time are you going to be done? I'll come back. No, no, you're our special guest. You've got to stay here. And we got a, a spot right for you in the front row. And so he sat there and they started the open air service. And he preached and the missionary preached and preached and preached. And that man would not come to Jesus Christ. He said, I knew I had at least one non-Christian in the crowd. So I preached and preached, but he sat on his hands. He was not going to re- respond. And it is often the case, we have to share Christ over and over again because people know the cost to following Jesus. It's their life. And it could literally be their life when they turn their back on their Islamic faith or Buddhist faith or Hindu faith. It could be their life. And so he could not do it. Well, they finished that night and they all went back to where they were sleeping. They had just rented some homes in the local place. There's no hotels. And it's hot there. I mean, it was hot, hot, hot. I am a northerner. I love cold degrees. I mean, 55 degrees, I can be out in a short sleeve shirt. I like that. You know, I've been in minus 20, and I, I can still smile. I've been with the reindeer people where the warm day was negative 10. Okay, so I like cold. I always melt every time I go to Africa. But if it was hot for the Africans, I know I could not have survived. I mean, they were hot. So they all grabbed their mattresses and said, it's too hot, we're going to go outside. They slept on the front patio, the porch, and the, but the bricklayer took his mattress and went down by the front gate and just laid it there on the ground to sleep, trying to get some kind of breeze, some kind of air, cool himself down. Well, next morning, the missionary came back, Brent, and he picked him up in the pickup, and they were going up early to look at the site. They wanted to see the site, and Brent just looked at him and said, hey, How did you sleep last night? Oh, terrible. Well, why? Well, as I was sleeping, I heard a noise. And I got up, and I looked out the gate window, and I saw somebody walking down the road to me, a man all dressed in white, walking down the road, and I knew it was a king. And I said to myself, why is there a king walking down this African village in the middle of the night? First of all, I could look out my road in the middle of the night anytime, and I would never imagine a king walking down my street where I'm at. But that's what he thought. He says, the man walked right up to him, looked at me in the eyes, and knew everything about me. And he said, follow me. 
And he went on. So the man is sitting in the pickup truck. And it's one of those, like, acts and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, what am I supposed to do? The guy shares this and he says, what am I supposed to do? And right there, the gospel was preached once again. And that Muslim accepted Jesus Christ. And the night before, he would not run to the altar. That night, the altar became, that morning, the altar became the front of a pickup truck. And the first Christian of that new church was added that day before they even had the walls put up. See, that is why we do missions. It starts with a radical invitation to come follow Jesus. And there's a king that will walk before you again every day, and you've got to look at him in the face. And he's saying, come follow me. Remember Jesus walking by the fishermen? He walks right by him. He says, come follow me. They dropped their nets, and they followed him. Now, they didn't ask some question. You know, sometimes we'd say, well... What's the retirement plan? You know, do I, do I get a 401k on this? What's our insurance plan? You know, do I have how many days off per week? You know, what is my... No, he just says, come follow me. And they radically followed him. A call to missions and a call to each of you on a service like this is just simply to say yes to Jesus. The call to be involved in missions begins with a call to obedience. Now, it's also not just a radical invitation, but there's also a supernatural process in this. See, we are conduits of God's grace. You are not called to be the superhero. My girls, you know, I, I already mentioned, I've got, I've got wonderful daughters, and I draw the line on certain things. You know, I will watch many, I've watched Anna Green Gables, yes, but, you know, I just cannot do Pride and Prejudice, and I'm not going to do a Hallmark movie. I just, you know, there's just certain lines. So we have a common agreement, and that's superhero movies. So we can watch The Avengers, you know, and Wonder Woman and all those kind of things. Those are great. We can do that. And they let me watch my westerns or whatever else I want to watch. And, but... You know, so often we tend to think in the Christian world, you have got to be the superhero. You're going to dive in and you're going to deflect the bullets with your wristbands. No, God just says, use whatever gifts I've given you, even the smallest bit. We are all conduits of God's grace. We can all show kindness. Sometimes the greatest evangelism is just inviting somebody over to your house and having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and just saying, here's what my life was like, how I was, God changed me. And just sharing simply where God transformed your life. I went to Iran four years ago, got the visa. You have to do this roundabout way to get a visa because there is no, we don't have a diplomatic relationship, so I had to go through a Pakistan embassy, and I got a visa. I was a little nervous. What am I supposed to do? You know, I do crazy things. I'll jump off of cliffs. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do all kind of crazy things, but I was a little nervous about Iran because it's Iran. I mean, I, Nancy even said, you got to take somebody with me. So I took another missionary kid, grown adult, with me. At least there's two of us if it was a one-way ticket. But, you know, we went into this place without knowing what we were getting into. Well, it was different. I will say I've never been in a place like Iran. I got on the airplane from Istanbul to go into Shiraz, one of the southern cities, and we start, struck up a conversation with this Iranian man who lives in Canada. He started talking to me about all this. Oh, you're going to have to eat this food. You're going to have to see this. And I thought, what? Wow, this is amazing. You know, really friendly, really open. We got off the airplane, got on the little bus that takes you up to the terminal, and a little Iranian woman is, can't speak English, but talked through this Canadian. And she said, oh, if you come through my village, I'll have you over for dinner. Welcome to Iran. And got to the border, and they stamped my passport and said, welcome to Iran. And I walked through. Now, I'm... I'm a sophisticated missionary. I just want you to know this. I can play this game. So people say, where are you from? I speak Russian. 
So sometimes I can say it in Russian. I go, where are you from? Well, I'm from Moldova. Because I have to go the political. Which one is the safest? I'm from Russia. I can use that one. Even, you know, I'm not Russian. Or from America. And the guy says, oh, no, just say you're from America. And over the next 10 days, I am telling you, every Iranian would say, you're from America? Thanks for coming to my country. Can I get a selfie with you? I am not exaggerating. In fact, I saw your poster out there in the, in, the, in the lobby, compelled. And there's one of the photos down, I think it's the bottom right. There's a dark woman with really dark eyes, Iranian. I took that photo. She's in, I do a lot of photography. She's, she is in a, a nomad in Iran, still pulled out a cell phone and took a selfie with us. I mean, that's just how life is. I have never been in a nation that was friendlier toward Americans than Iran. And I, I tell people this all the time. Never let the nightly news drive your interpretation of the Great Commission. There is, Jesus loves this world, folks. And no matter what it says, just remember there is people with names and stories and they're, they're, they're hungry for something. They're looking for answers. And just be, be open to that. We don't have any missionaries inside Iran, but we have missionaries outside. And what they do is they strike up conversations. They're targeting Iranians that leave the nation and go on vacation in a neighboring country. And they can recognize them from the shoes and the way they look. And so they'll strike up a conversation, scores of stories of how many times somebody said, do you have a word of God? And they kiss it and hide it and they take it back and they smuggle it back. They're discipling people over their phone with WhatsApp, showing you know, all the way across the nation. Well, one of the team members fell sick and he had to go, went into the hospital. And the hospital sent him home said, stay in your apartment, you just got to get well. And he was complaining to God. I know none of us ever complain to God. You know, I know that. But this guy was complaining because he said, it's the prime time. All the people are here, all the team members out. This is what I came for. Why am I stuck here? And the Lord said to him, you can go outside. Oh, yeah, I guess I could do that. So he got up out of his apartment, walked down three flights of stairs, and sat on the, walked outside and sat on the bench that was right outside his apartment door building. And no longer had he sat down. When an Iranian man walks up to him, points a finger and says, Are you a Christian? Uh, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Good. I knew I was supposed to come here today and somebody would tell me about Jesus. And for the next 10, 15 minutes, he shared about Christ and led that man to the Lord. See, we are all just conduits of God. We all just say, God, I will go sit on the bench because there's somebody here today that needs to hear about Jesus. Be ready. You don't have to be a superhero. I met Michael in Vienna. Michael's one of those Middle Eastern refugees. I saw the video through worship. And all those refugees coming across. Michael made a comment to me. He said, I always had a heart for God, but the only God I knew was Allah. So I became a Muslim. I have never forgotten that phrase, and it convicts me ever since. Because why do we go? Why do you support all those missionaries? Because there's a world out there that the only God they know is Buddha or Allah or some Hindu, one of the Hindu thousands of gods there. I mean, that's the only God they know, and they want to hear about Jesus because only Jesus can change them. He said, I became such a, I had a heart for God, so I just became a Muslim. I studied, I even did my pilgrimage. I'm in Mecca. I'm standing in Mecca and I hear the hands of thieves being chopped off and something snapped within me and said, this is my religion? A little side note here. Because of things like 9-11 and the terrorist attacks, tens and thousands and tens of thousands of Muslims have become disillusioned with their faith and have come to Jesus Christ around the world. God can turn whatever the enemy means for evil. He can turn it to an opportunity to open their doors, about, open their hearts to hear about Jesus Christ. Well, Michael said, I, 
I left Mecca, went back home, got a visa to go to London to study at university business. And I was there, and he says, I remember walking home one day at the bus stop, and a little British girl walks up to me and says, Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life. But his heritage still was there, and he turned his back and said, I am Muslim, turned around and walked away. Fast forward again, he had to flee the country. Just tensions came up, and he was one of those that made his way across Turkey, got on one of those boats and rafts and made it across into the sea, walked his way across Europe and ended up in Vienna. The first day he was in Vienna, he was down in the subway station, and an Egyptian woman walks up to him and says, where are you from? And he told her which country. He says, oh, we got people just like you at our church. Why don't you come with me tomorrow? So they arranged to meet. The next morning she met him there, took him to church, and as he's standing in that service, hearing worship, you know, we have, you guys have great worship here. Now, I, you know, I say this, never take it for granted. Just when you enter in, just say, Lord, all right now, I've got these minutes. I am going to declare my praise to you, whether I feel like it or not. I'm going to lift my hands whether I feel like it or not, because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I will follow you. Because the first time he heard it, it melted something in his heart. He says, I'm standing there in worship as those declarations came, and I, my life passed before my eye, and I remembered I had the scene vivid before me of being in Mecca, disillusioned with Islam. I remember that little British girl that walks up to me and in boldness simply says, Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life, who I rejected. And then it goes down to an Egyptian woman who just simply said, would you come to church with me? Something every one of us can do almost every day, find somebody that we can bring to Jesus. I've got the name Andy. I'm just Andy. But I love Andrew. If you read the New Testament, Andrew simply brought the people to Jesus. This is more than once. He took the Greeks to Jesus. He brought them to Jesus. That's what we are all called to do. Bring people to Jesus. And let God do the work in their heart. And so when the altar call came, Michael ran to the altar and gave his life to Jesus Christ. That Middle Eastern Muslim, all of a sudden, it all came back together. And there's a supernatural process that every single one of us has a little part in it. Now, the divine mandate is really the main scripture I'm coming to. And I, I've shared stories and I've used scripture, but I, I just want that Acts 1.8, which is so well known, and we all know it, if you've been around the church very long. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be. I mean, it just says it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, we're all responsible for all four of them. Not just one of them. I don't get to pick and say, hey, I'm taking Jerusalem, you can have the ends of the earth. But we are responsible for all of them. We are to be his witnesses all four places, different ways, different moments. Some of it's prayer, some of it's finances, some of it's presence. But we are to be his witnesses wherever we are at. Jerusalem is hard. Where was the one place Jesus, the one place Jesus was rejected? Where was it? His hometown. It's hard sometimes. Judea. Judea is a place we, I say, it's the town we drive by on the way to the airport to go on our missions trip. I mean, there's the towns next door that we forget that they need to have a church and somebody to hear about Christ. Samaria. If you look at Samaria, there was racial prejudice and tensions. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't like it. There, were, there, was, a, 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 there was bad blood. There was history. 
And I come back to America four years ago, I realized, boy, racism and prejudice doesn't, hasn't ceased to exist in this nation. But at the foot of the cross, the church has to be the leader. And we have got to be the witnesses, the place that reconcile all people, no matter your skin color, no matter your ethnicity, no matter which language. There is only one language and one person. It's, we are followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the church must be the leader in that. And then we're called to be his witnesses in the ends of the earth. All of us. Today we're talking about faith promises. That's one way we give, we sacrifice. We, we will support people going. Some of you may go. I don't know. All I know is that God has called us to be his witnesses in all these places. It's really simple. We simply follow Jesus and we want other people to follow him. And so let's do whatever we can do to follow Jesus. Amen? And there's going to be a challenge. Pastor's going to talk at the end about the faith promise. And I'm going to ask you, Lord, what do you want me to give? Not if you can give, but what do you want me to give? Everyone. My daughters were young teenagers. And they said, we got to start giving to missions. And they, were, they barely had jobs or did anything, but they wanted to start at $5 a month. Maybe you have never given money to missions. You need to start with something. Start. Give. Maybe you're a businessman and say, Lord, I just want to use whatever businesses, a businessman or a businesswoman, and just say, God, bless my efforts, and I want to give. I don't know what, but let God stretch you and put the number and the thought in your mind of this. Maybe God is calling some of you to go. And you say, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm not educated enough, I'm too educated. But God says, go. The world needs people. They need missionaries to go. In fact, the one prayer that resonates more than anything else is when Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to do what? For the church to give more money? No, to send forth workers. He says, I need workers. In your church, I'm praying that out of this very congregation here today, somebody will be called into missions. They'll go around the world, and they will lead somebody to Christ. And it'll be an extension of each of you, because God has called us. Following Jesus is our one call. And I am just asking you, Pray, Lord, give me ears to hear your voice if you're calling me to go, calling me to pray and give my time in prayer, calling me to give my finances. We are called to follow Jesus. Nancy and I were sick last March with COVID, and uh, when you're, that was at the beginning. So we were like patients eight and nine in our county, and nobody knew what to do. They're all afraid. But then we got past it. It's like many of you, you get it's a bad, bad, bad flu. And, but that, that era, we were just locked at home. And I listened to the Bible over and over again. In fact, I got an app on my phone. Nancy found it, Dwell. We got the lifetime subscription. So I listened to the Bible every day, almost, and I've listened through it over and over again. And with that stretch, in the last few months, I've listened to the, the book of John probably 10 times. And I keep getting struck by follow, follow, follow. In fact, before we were even Christians, called Christians, what were we called? Followers of Jesus. We just simply follow him. I've had dreams in the last few things. I need to attune my ears to his voice. His voice, But the longer we serve Jesus, sometimes it's easier for us to assume that we are listening because the sacred becomes familiar and the holy becomes normal and we rest on our past rather than listen for God's leading to the future. So this is a brand new. We're challenging again today just with this financial side. But it once again to say, Lord, are you asking me to go? Are you asking me to pray? Are you asking me to give? I will do it. I, Lord, I want to be sensitive to you. And I just want to, I want to encourage you, open your hearts to Jesus. I already mentioned that um, we have three daughters, and 
that whole estrogen bath that I live with quite often. By the way, I'm just like, I love this front row. You know, this is my house all the time because I've got daughters. They're bringing all these girls home. You know, I, I'm just, sometimes they sit around. I love my college student daughters bring them all home and they're invading my house. And occasionally, I will have to admit, I, I go upstairs because I do not know how girls can do this. Okay, there's five of them at the table. Four of them at least are talking at the same time. I just do not know how that can happen. But God in his... Strange sense of humor said, Andy, there is just not enough female presence in your life. So when we were in Moldova, Nancy opened up Freedom Home, an aftercare home for survivors of trafficking. So then I go in there, and all those girls, and trust me, they called me Uncle Andy, but if I made, the, if I made a mistake in Russian, they would hoot and holler, oh, look what Uncle Andy just said. I said, what word did I say? Because I can't repeat it. It probably was a bad swear word that I didn't know. But it was, it was an interesting challenge as Nancy felt passionate to open that home. Moldova was one of the highest source countries for girls that were trafficked into prostitution. And so she opened the Freedom Home, and we worked with girls that came in. And there was brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. I mean, we've had a pastor's daughter that was thinking she was going for a job in Moscow and ended up beaten and prostituted. Just horrendous things. And One girl I'll call Amy came into the home, and she was sold by her mom when she was 13, prostitute on the streets of Moscow, forced to beg, ended up with a child. Some people found her back in Moldova with a one-year-old child next to her, and they brought her in the home. And, and it was a process. It's a long process. There is no six weeks you're out and healed. I mean, this is years. It was a year in that home. She didn't even understand love. She was like somebody who had been, her eyes were dead. You know, she didn't understand love. One year down the road, she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. And I saw life come back to her eyes. I mean, it was wonderful. I saw that. I've often said, oh, I wish I could have seen Lazarus come out when you read that story in the Bible. I would have loved to have seen Lazarus come out of the tomb. I tell people, I have seen Lazarus and his name is Amy. I saw a dead person come back to life. And that is what we do. And then a year down the road, she was filled with the Holy Spirit and smiles came back on her face. And we saw joy. I baptized her in water. And I mean, you see a life that is transformed. There was a time we came back, but there was like the old days. What would happen? What's, this is, you're healed. You're well. But she was hearing voices at night, suicidal thoughts, demonic voices saying, leave this place, kill yourself, and all these. And we prayed with her one night, and she slept. But we came back the next day, and Nancy just looked at her and said, do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? She said, yes. So in that little room, the two of us just prayed. Fifteen minutes. No fireworks, no demonstrative things but just at the end Nancy stopped and said how do you feel and she goes oh it's gonna be okay oh why do you say that Amy well because when you were praying I opened my eyes and Jesus talked to me okay you know uh, that's great what did he say now you gotta understand Amy probably has fetal alcohol beaten uh, just abuse I learned Russian Nancy Romanian she'll switch the languages she can never repeat anything more than once but she repeated three times to us exact words identical of what God said and the third time we wrote it in the front of her Bible she said, Jesus said, do not be afraid, do not fear. The demon is gone, do not fear. And I, um, when we go back, we were supposed to have been back again. Because you know, we're, we're committed to seeing her. Her little daughter, Veronique, is now 12 years old, wants to be an airplane pilot, go to college. We're trying to encourage her, trying to change a generation. But we, when she comes running up, she'll hug me and hug me and hug me and hug me and hug me. And Uncle Andy, you're here, we've missed you. And and." you realize you're holding something that is priceless. There is no price that could be established. It costs a lot, 
There's churches that supported us monthly. Finances. It cost blood, sweat, tears, sleepless nights. I broke up fights at midnight when I'm trying to speak Russian. I mean, it is. it cost me hair I could not afford to lose. I really, I mean, it's brutal. But it is worth it when you hold a miracle in your arms. See, that's, I know this card has stuff on both sides, you know, how to pay and how to this, but there should be a, a picture right on the back side. It could be a picture of Michael. It could be a picture of that Muslim bricklayer. It could be a picture of Amy. Because whatever you give, there's a life at the other end of that. One last story, and this will illustrate it. When I pastored in Montana years ago, we had, we had a missionary call and say, can I come and preach? And I said, sure. You know, he was, they were missionary associates, which is a short term, but he was older. He was in his 50s. I felt like he was old because I was younger, and now that I'm in my over 50, I didn't, I'm sure he was very young. Okay, you know, I just want to relate that, but when you're 30, you think 50 is old. So he came, and he was a Vietnam vet, and so he said, I, I hate the Vietnamese. I don't like the Vietnamese, I, but God called me to go back and change my heart, and so we're going to go back and see the church established in Vietnam. Okay, we'll do it. He preached, and we got done, and we said, church, we somehow have to support him, just like you're doing here. Guys, can you add something? And I, I picture a couple in the back, Jim and Beulah, an older couple, retired. I know they gave, and they probably added something extra because we came all together, and yeah, I'll give something extra. Nancy and I gave something extra. So Jim and Beulah gave something to send this missionary for the first time to Vietnam. They went to Vietnam. They opened up a coffee shop. It's one of those things you hear in missions a lot. Now you have to have platforms, so businesses, and they'll do this. And they opened up a coffee shop because you can't preach openly. And people came in. They struck up conversations and led people to the Lord. Well, there was a Buddhist girl in a village outside that went into, came to the capital to go to university. Her English was poor, and she needed help. So they said, go to this coffee shop. Some friends did. They'll help you with your English. So she went over there, struck up a relationship, a conversation with them. Started talking to him, you know, about Jesus. Went to a worship service like this and thought, these people are crazy. What is this? Raising hands and music. But it drew her in and drew her in and step by step. And the day came that she gave her heart to Jesus. And that wonderful young woman studied, became devoted to the gospel. I mean, just kind of studied even on leadership. Had to come to the U.S. sometime. Had some family members here and went up to a wedding in Minneapolis. And up in Minneapolis, this young former Buddhist, now a follower of Christ, Met a young guy on the other side of the wedding party, you know, and it's, it happened the right age. They got interested. And next thing you know, they were married. So a year and a half later, a year and a half ago, sorry, a year and a half ago, Nancy and I sat across the table as the two of them were applying to missions, and their heart is to go to the Middle East, eventually to Yemen. Now, I got the whole picture here. Jim and Beulah raised and sold eggs for years, lived a modest little home, probably never bought new clothes. A simple person, it could be any one of you. It could be a businessman, it could be a college student, it could be a teenager, it could be a, uh, whatever worker you are. But they said, we're going to give something to missions. We're going to make a pledge, even beyond what we've done. And they sent a missionary who said yes to Jesus to go to a nation, to people he once hated, once battled in war. And he had a coffee shop who had a conversation with a Buddhist girl who had never met a Christian in her entire life. But the first Christian she met drew her to Jesus, the loving Savior. She gave her heart to Christ. And her and her husband that they met will someday go to Yemen. I believe in faith. And there's going to be a young man and a young woman or a young woman sitting across the coffee table from them someday that will hear about Jesus. 
And I don't know where the path will go from there because that, that young Muslim that gives them light, heart to Jesus Christ, they might go to South America or to go to Europe. Who knows where? But we are all a part of this path. Amen? You might not go to Vietnam and open a coffee shop, but you can be the person that gives $50 a month or $500 a month. Or you could be the person who prayed and interceded because I tell you, we had teams that were praying for Amy and she wouldn't even be here today except for bands of prayer partners that prayed. So I don't know what God is doing, but just remember, God wants to use you to reach this world. Amen? Let me pray for you. Jesus, right now, as we end this time, we think of the amazing things that you've done in each of our lives. You've saved us and redeemed us and changed us and directed our lives. You've given us a hope and a future. You've given us purpose. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you put courage within the heart of every person here. Courage to simply say yes to you. I will follow you and I'll obey. I'll give what you call me to give. I'll pray when you call me to pray. And I'll go if you call me to go. In Jesus' name, amen.